This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today and the Ascent Leader in Food for the Hungry, I bring you a conversation with two absolute legends. The first is Nancy Beach. She is known for the work that she has done, uh, being uh, the first female teaching pastor at Willow Creek, but she was an advocate for the arts and creativity. And Nancy serves uh, with me uh, and the Ascent Leader leading our craft and character communicator cohorts where we get eight, nine leaders, teachers, pastors, preachers in a living room. And Nancy is an, a phenomenal coach, like literally one of the best coaches on the planet. She, she's like Steve Kerr, Popovich. I mean, she, she just can coach a communicator to understand pacing, to understand how to find a message, to ask the right questions, to help you find your voice. And I've just been a big fan of hers for her integrity, the way that she lives. But this isn't just an episode with her. She has a daughter named Samantha Beach Kylie, who I have been watching and listening to her preach for the last few years. And uh, you can tell, you can tell the conversations as a kid in the kitchen. You can tell the way that they would debrief. You can tell just the, the verbal precision that both Nancy and Samantha have. And you're going to get to hear a message that Samantha delivered during Lent uh, for a beautiful church in Raleigh, North Carolina called Church on Morgan. Uh, Samantha's been teaching there and she is phenomenal. So get a little glimpse of her sound, and then we're going to dive into a conversation with Nancy Beach and Samantha Beach Kylie. We're going to talk about the art of preaching, about coaching communicators, and also about their brand new book that they wrote together. And the concept is absolutely beautiful. Listen to this. Those words are simple and stunning. Whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Uh-oh. What does this mean for us impossibly grown-up people? Us who fuss over the forecast and the dry cleaning and whether or not we're free on April 18th. Us who strive to get a handle on and get on top of our lives. Are we to grow backwards? Is Jesus suggesting we lost something along the way? Can it be recovered? For as it is stated in this passage and also preserved for us in Matthew and Luke, the project of becoming like a child seems paramount to our participation in the kingdom of God. I want to linger on that term for a moment before we get on. For some of you, this phrase kingdom of God might be interchangeable with heaven. And for some of us, it's helpful to think about our future world marked by peace and justice and restoration, a world that we are co-creating even now with God, the direction and destination of our evolution. But for others, just the word kingdom might hold an unhelpful patriarchal colonial connotation. And so a biblical scholar, Dermot O'Murchu, offers the term companionship of mutual empowerment as a nice alternative. I actually like the phrase kingdom for our purposes today because of how it enchants me. It reminds me of Narnia and Terabithia and Wonderland and all those invisible realities that could only be accessed by a child through a threshold in our visible world. So use whatever translation compels you. Only consider this, that the kingdom of God might be far closer and more immediate than we might have been taught to categorize it. I think this passage suggests we've experienced it in flashes and tastes, and perhaps never more often than when we were small. Now, of course, not all children experience the kind of childhood that we all deserve. So we won't idealize childhood as some sort of lost paradise. 
But there are qualities that tend to persist in children, qualities that we can relearn or learn anew if early trauma dictated that we grow up too fast. Yes, our work is to integrate the sacred elements of our original condition into our present maturity. For Jesus displayed not just great affection for children, but directed his disciples to look upon them as models of faith. And in what's recorded about the life of Jesus, we have an example of what this integration looks like. So in sifting through what characteristics we might work to recover and what we might rightly outgrow, I've been asking, what is true about Jesus that is also true about children? Like what's in the middle of that Venn diagram? And there are many qualities that come to mind for me. I'm sure you could add to the list. We could talk about curiosity and having a beginner's mindset or adopting a posture of trust and surrender, as children are so good at doing, offering the gift of wholehearted presence. But there are just two qualities that I want to focus on today, and these are two that seem like lost arts to me, things that many of us have forgotten along our faith journey, myself most emphatically included, and they are two that might aid us in our efforts to receive and to build a better world. Well, welcome, Nancy Beach and Samantha Beach, Kylie. Hey, we just got the privilege to hear a teach you did uh, a few uh, months back at Church on Morgan, a great, great church. Uh, I love their pastors and their team. Um, But give us, Sam, just a little heart behind what you were trying to do in that teach. Yeah, so it was from a short little passage where Jesus says that... um, children are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. And we must become like children in order to experience the kingdom. And that's such a short and powerful story, but we could have gone so many ways from there. And so my first draft of this had, you know, a ton of different qualities of children that I think are worth emulating. And my husband, who's a great editor, said, this is like way too much. You know, if you had to distill it down, um, what would be the ones you most are on fire to talk about? And so I started looking at, okay, what, where in this list overlaps with qualities that we see in Jesus and that started to narrow it down a little. And then, and then just sitting with, and this could be just where I was at in my own, am at in my own faith journey, but, um, where, where I'm asked, find myself in a season of asking a lot of hard questions and critical thinking and working through doubt. Um, the qualities of wonder and zeal kind of popped to the surface for me as things that I was losing touch with. And I felt Felt like some other folks in my orbit might be as well as we're wading through these hard questions and all of that. And it's sometimes honestly harder than ever to be enthusiastic about our faith and what God is, is doing in the world. And so narrowing in on those two qualities really helped me find the heart of this, of this message. And it was fun to go from there. Well, I love that you said this because you just mentioned two words, first draft and um, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, obviously you and uh, Nancy, your mom, are, are writers, um, but there is a way at which you both communicate. Um, I had the privilege, both Nancy and I, last summer to preach at the same church in a uh, suburb of Chicago and, um, and got to watch her communicate. And again, just there is this effortless, what it feels like in the way that you all communicate. But I can tell that the craft of writing, um, the first draft, possibly a second and a third, there is, there is something at which you all, um, and you both do so well. Talk about the first draft. And I'd love to start with you, continue with you, Sam, and, and then jump to you, Nancy. Like, talk about the writing um, and how you go about that. I mean, this teach at Church on Morgan was 18 minutes, but man, you jammed such incredible content in there. Um, so talk about the, the first draft process for you. Well, the first draft probably would have been 35 minutes. I start with way too much and I kind of, it's actually my most favorite part of the process. Cause I just throw everything on the page that could belong. And I'm pulling quotes from all different sectors and going like, okay, what do scientists say about this? What do people who don't share my identity markers say about this? What do people a lot wiser than me say? Um, and, and what stories does this make me think of? What illustrations might be useful? What images does this make me think of? And so I just kind of let there be no rules. And then, um, for me, the process of revision, I come from the theater world. And so my introduction to writing was through playwriting and I had a great playwriting professor who talked about, um, as a writer, you have a palette and every story you choose to tell, every image goes on that palette. 
And um, when it gets too muddy, we end up with something that's really messy when we have when we're playing with too many colors. But the power is when you can return to the same stories and images and twist them or look at them through another lens or find a deeper, another layer of meaning in them. So in my second and third draft, and if I really get to where I'd like a sermon to go, I'm finding maybe just one or two key things that images or stories that I'm going to return to and find new meaning out of. So for me, it's a process, the revision process is getting rid of all the excess and sitting with those images that rise to the surface and feel like I can mine the most from them. And sometimes I'm more successful at that than others for sure. Well, I think you, you're profoundly uh, gifted at reclaiming. And I think that's one of the, the hardest, um, you know, characteristics of a communicator is taking something that's familiar and making it unfamiliar again. Mm -hmm. Um, So it took a word like zeal and really, I think for a lot of us, you know, maybe that word uh, and the way that you described it and the way that you unpacked it, the way that you um, didn't shame it, but actually reminded of us of the beauty of that word. And I just, it like, again, it felt so thoughtful and effortless but you could tell there was so much intentionality. And I love that palette metaphor of just, you didn't muddy it. It just felt like every sentence as you were stringing these words together, helped people. And I could just imagine myself being in the Church on Morgan family, you know, just kind of leaning in, just thinking through like, man, where have I lost that zeal? Or where does that zeal maybe be reclaimed? Um, because it, 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 it wasn't all bad. It wasn't, it wasn't all, it wasn't all bad. And so there's just, there's a power in that. Nancy, talk about that for you because um, you as well. I mean, you always have the best glasses in the game, um, but like you, 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 you walk up and I always feel like I'm going to hear wisdom, wisdom like deposited, but it's going to pull me in these different places. And very similarly, like I'm going to learn something that I didn't know about a word or almost experience a word in a new way. Talk about your process as a writer, but mainly when it comes to manuscripting and drafting of talks. My process is a little bit different than Samantha's. Where I have too much is probably in what I call the collection phase. So the first thing I'm doing is studying the scripture and commentaries, of course, and then also anything else I can find on the subject that I'm working on and I'm taking notes. So I end up with pages and pages of options, all kinds of stuff. And then there's sort of this mysterious walking around phase for me that um, it starts to take some shape in my mind before I've written a first draft. And uh, my friend, John Orper used to call it like the movements of a message, not so much points. Uh, That's how I used to think I'm very linear. You know, what's my top three points. It's not as much that as it, is sort of a sense of, oh, I could go from here to here and maybe tell that story or whatever. So by the time I do my first draft, there still is probably a little too much, but I've kind of already weaned a lot of it away, um, you know, in my mind. Where I go too much, we all find our voice in teaching. And one thing that's true of my voice, and Samantha has done this as well, is I love to use quotes. Um, the problem is I use too many. And so, uh, you know, uh, sometimes someone will say to me, you know, like, what do you think? You know, because I'm always saying, but this brilliant person said this. And so I usually have to take about half of them out that I, that I would love to, to quote and get just the ones. And I think Samantha's so good at this, just the ones that are really going to deliver, you know, the punch that I need. Yeah, no, I, and I honestly, I, I think in this day and age where I feel like, um, it's really easy for people to take an idea and use it as their own. Um, the use of the, the quotes and they're not all from the same commentary. It's not just one person, but the, the range at which you both use quotes and how, um, you know, eclectic the, the wisdom that you are pulling from um, it just, it shows me as a, as someone who's receiving from both of you, how much you have put into this talk. And that's that like, it, it communicates that. So there's, it, and I think some of us are uh, communicators that have kind of grown up going, you don't want anybody, you don't want to quote anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, you just want to make it seem like you're the smartest person in the room. And I just, I just really appreciate the humility, but the curiosity, but the depth that both of you bring. Um, would you, would you both 
consider yourselves writers who teach or are you teachers who also write? Or is there another option? Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mom? <laughs> I think we're different. I think I'm more of a teacher who writes. Um, and I think Samantha is a brilliant writer who has now discovered her voice in teaching. Um, for me, I've always called myself a reluctant writer. I'm not one of these people who just can't wait to write a book or anything like that. Um, I love to communicate, and usually I think of that more verbally, so the writing supports that. But uh, when I see brilliant writing, and I know I'm biased because I'm her mother, but I say this about other writers as well, when I, I know it when I see it. And I, I have great respect and awe for people who have a way with words uh, like Samantha does, and I think it's an incredible gift, but she also can bring the communicative gift too. Um, to that writing. So that's my opinion, but I think she's a writer who teaches. Mm, Thanks mom. Well, I've learned from watching my mom how to take the moment, take the time to teach. Like the script is what it is, but it it comes to life when we actually are present in the moment. And that's something I've always admired about my mom's teaching is her ability to have it all on the page, but connect and, and do what the moment requires. She's so great at sensing the room. And I think that's where great teachers who also write can be so effective. And so that's kind of my growing edge um, and something I really respect about her teaching. Well, I, I, I love it because I think, you know, you have this performance background, you know, you, you spent time in Brooklyn, you write about this, you, you even taught, uh, told us a little bit about it at the teach uh, at church of Morgan. Um, but there is this performance and, you know, I actually came uh, to know who you were Sam during um, COVID through some kind of, creative pieces that you had created. And I was like, this is incredible. And so, but they, but they, they came across as really honest and really human, um, you know, really natural, whether you were, you know, filming it inside your closet uh, <laughs> or, or you were doing a performance uh, somewhere. And I just really, really amazing. What have you learned from the theater world that has been an easy kind of, um, adaptation into a church preaching space hmm. that could be beneficial to any of our listeners? And then what has been the the piece of theater that you're like, that has been the hardest for me to shake? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Well, the first time I was invited to teach, I remember sitting down to write and this feeling of like, so I can just say it, like I can just say directly the thing that we're talking about because so much of artistic work is Emily Dickinson has a poem where she says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And I feel like that's what we're doing as artists is trying to not just come in and, and hit you with the thesis right away, but um, maybe invite you to ask a question yourself or help you see something from a different angle or walk you to the edge of the discovery, but not quite go all the way. And so I have kind of held on to that approach because in part that's is also because I'm a young voice and I'm keenly aware of that. I'm, often teaching in front of audiences I know are far better educated, have been walking with God for a much longer time than me. And so um, so I found the, the artist's mind of like, what is the best question we can ask? And not always needing to resolve it or answer it or have three bullet points that everyone can walk away with, but um, coming at it kind of from an angle, telling it slant is something that I feel like I've tried to hang on to. And what I've had to lose... Um, well, what I'm still working to lose, I think, is the precision that performance requires and the, um, you know, the, that we rehearse and make sure there's a way we want to say things and a tone we want to say it with. And if I just drill things over and over and over in my own little office, I'll come in with this sense of how I want things to go and I'm not present to the room, which is what I was talking about my mom being so good at. And I can't, I rush over moments and I'm prone to not sense when something needs to breathe a little bit longer or maybe be repeated. And so that's what I'm trying to shake and, and get better. What, what tips are you kind of using or tools or kind of trade secrets to help you? Because I think for a lot of people, they, there is a spirit of excellence that they want to have. And yeah. at sometimes that practice and that time and that routine and that precision comes at a cost, like you said, of reading the room. 
what, what, are you, what are you having to tell yourself or what practices so that you can actually be more present to whether in your own skin or whether in yeah. the body of, of the congregation that you're teaching? What, what does that look like for you? Yeah, big part of it is, you know, in theater, we pretend often that there's, that the audience isn't there. Like there's a wall between us. And so a big part of it is making eye contact with people. At, at my church where I'm at now, we, the teach comes right after the turn and greet. And so instead of like going up and being buried in my script, I'm trying to often actually turn and greet people, even though sometimes I feel a little thrown coming right out of that conversation into the sermon. It helps me remember I'm talking to actual human beings and I've just made eye contact with them. And so holding on to that presence and that connection is helpful. And then in a really technical way, I'm also, I manuscript everything, but I'm going through and going, okay, what section can I just walk away from my music stand and just tell the story or just, um, what, or, or just deliver the point or ask the question really honestly in my own words, however it occurs to me in the moment. And that's still really scary for me to do, but I'm trying to get braver at it. Gosh, I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, the Gaithers, uh, they, Bill Gaither had a, a way at which he tried to teach his vocalists um, the importance of being present to the room. And he would, he would have them sing the song, but he would just say, you just sing that chorus or you sing that verse and you sing it over that one, that one woman in the third row or that one family in the seventh row until you think that they've they've got that point. And then you, then you move to the next person. And it, it was really helpful for me just in the power of eye contact, because again, just putting yourself. So I love just even that, that focus on that. Um, I love that you quoted Emily Dickinson. I love just that, that thought of telling the truth and tell us slant. And I feel like this is a great segue because both of you um, have written this book together called next Sunday, which is the honest dialogue on the future of the church. I'm halfway through it. Uh, the book hasn't come out yet, so I just got it this week. I was plowing through it last night. I, I love this. Um, Nancy, talk about where this book came out of. Um, and I really just feel like it's it's fun because now knowing this Emily Dickinson quote, I feel like in half of the chapters that I've read so far, you all are telling it slant. And I like it how you're doing this. So Nancy, give us a little backstory on this book. Well, a couple of years ago, I was asked to speak to some executive uh, Christian publishers, and the subject they assigned me was the future of the church. Like, what do you think is important for the future of the church? And I thought that was the most staggeringly challenging assignment. Um, I don't know if anybody knows, you know, we had the audacity to pretend that we do as we write this book, but knowing what the future of the church needs to be, uh, that's pretty daunting. And so uh, I put together uh, a message for that. And some of the publishers said, would you ever want to make this a book? And I hadn't written for a long time. And honestly, you have to be really compelled to write a book. Like I said, I'm a reluctant writer. So I was chatting about it with Samantha. And I think it was her idea. But at some point, she says, well, maybe we could do something together. And all of a sudden, that opened up a doorway for me of possibility that I had not seen and got me excited. I did feel compelled. And we thought about how, as a family, we debrief everything. Like the girls were athletes and they were actors. And after every soccer game or play or basketball game, family comes home, stands around in the kitchen, and how did it go? And that's what we talk about. Well, it's very true for church as well. They grew up in an environment, good or bad, that evaluates everything, you know. So we would come home from church or especially a major service like Christmas or Easter and talk about what were the moments and what didn't work and um, who really connected and all that kind of stuff. And so I think this book is really an expression of us together looking at the church, looking at what we think matters most for the church going forward and bringing our voice to it. I do want to say we didn't co-write in, in the sense that we wrote sentences together. That would have just made us both crazy. I think what I like is that both of our voices are distinct and we each do a chapter on every one of the distinctives that we think matter going forward. So, so bring us into your house, like in the suburbs of Chicago, you know, it's, it's, is there a, was there a place in the house where, the debrief would happen? Was it around an island? Was it in the living room? Um, what, and give, give us like an example, like Sam, just of one of the moments that you were like, oh, I remember this. This was like so shaping as an epic beach kind of debrief session. 
Oh man. Well, yes, it was around a kitchen island and, but it usually started in the car. And so then we would get to the island and get the food out and the drinks and then it would get even more passionate. Um, but we couldn't really wait to start debriefing until we got home. Um, yeah. And if it was, a, I'm trying to think of a specific one. I remember um, even in high school uh, when I would go see big, big services at our church, like my mom was saying around the holidays, I remember around Christmas and Easter, especially just being struck by, and I think this contributed to the passion I had around the conversation, the potential when you gathered all those people to tell a story together. And so we would talk about like, gosh, that song was amazing. And then someone came up and did announcements and it was like, it never happened. Like we'd talk about these transitions and like, how, how we felt like people like ran over moments sometimes, or we, or we talk about when um, someone recognized that there was a real moment that had just happened and, and handled it really tenderly, maybe prayed after it or let us take the time that it deserved. So I don't have a specific memory off the top of my head, but I remember, especially in holidays, just being struck by how every moment held such potential. There were so many people in the room who probably hadn't been to church in 12 months, you know? So, um, so it was fun to talk about as a family. Well, in the, in the debrief process, I think you learn how to, one, speak, you know, what you actually think or about an experience, but also in the debrief process, you actually learn how to receive critique or feedback or ways that, oh yeah, I, I, I could have made that extra pass in that game, or I could have, you know, passed through that moment a little bit better. Talk about that because I feel like in this book, you both, just from the chapters that I've currently read, it's so fun to watch how you both, it, it feels like I'm around an island and Nancy, you, you might go first in one chapter where you're articulating your experience and some things that you've learned. And then Sam, you'll come up and just say, yeah, but, and here's this and, and add such depth to it. But I, I'm curious, you know, Nancy is as a mom, um, was, was that just an intentional thing that, um, you and Warren, your husband were like, Hey, we, we're going to have a culture where we can talk about anything and we can chop this up. Even, even about church, even about my job, even about a teach, even about a game. Um, talk about that. Well, I wish I could say it was super intentional and we we're just, you know, that smart that we figured it out. I think like Sam said, in, in many ways, we couldn't help ourselves. Um, it's just kind of how we're all wired. And and the funny thing is my husband included. So while with sports, of course, he was more of the expert, uh, even in the arts and with church, he had a strong point of view and a voice um, to, to add to it, which was really great because he sort of represented the everyman kind of person, you know, experiencing things. And I think there's a humility too um, that we learned with each other to say, okay, don't just tell me what I did well, but what, how could I get better? And we tried to model that. And so when I um, was, a, was teaching already at the church at that time, I really wanted to know what my daughters and husband, you know, thought, what they had to say. And they would tell me what I did well, but they also would say, you know, mom, that one part, that one section was kind of confusing or you know, I thought you rushed too much through that, or they always would tell me you had, you were funny, you had a joke, but you didn't wait for it. Cause I had no confidence in my humor whatsoever. I would just go, you know, right through it. And they'd say, you are funny, but you just have to trust it, you know? So I, I just think we all got better. And that's what evaluation is, is about. It's celebrating what went well. And then saying, if we had it to do over, Ken, what would we do different with Samantha as a, uh, a basketball player, the main thing in the family was shoot the ball. You know, she was, she was always, <laughs> she was a great passer point guard. And, um, you know, it drove her dad nuts because she would not take the shot when she had a chance. And I think those conversations apply then in every arena, not just sports. Man, real, real quick side note. You did a teach Nancy at soul city in 2017, 2018, I think it was 2018. And that was one of the points. And mm -hmm. it, it like, it, it like ministered to me at such an important moment. And just, mm -hmm. just you just saying that phrase, it just took me right back to mm -hmm. listening to you preach uh, in downtown Chicago. Um, I want to, I want to go and just walk through this table of contents um, because I think that was one of the things that first just intrigued me. I love the idea, both of you writing this together um, from different generational experiences, different kind of um, 
opportunities that both of you had, but um, I thought maybe just for a moment, you could just take like a, a couple sentences and kind of say what the heart of this chapter is about. Um, let's start with the first one, turn and greet terrors, or does anyone actually care that I'm here? Sam, what's that one about? Yeah, this, this is our, our chapter about community, which we started with because I think that's so many of us long for when we, when we walk through the doors of a church and it's one of the hardest things to find. So we talk a little bit about what that looks like, what that looks like today, what it's looked like historically, and what it might look like in the years to come. I love it. The second one was train up a child in the way she should go, and she will never forget the hand motions. Uh, Nancy, what was that one about? Well, we really believe that a church has to pay attention to the little ones and to the family, of course. And we each had different experiences. I grew up in a small non-denominational church, but it was very forming and people knew my name and I I was a part of a small intimate uh, group of kids. And then I wondered what that would look like in a mega church for my girls to to grow up and be formed in in so many ways by what was called promised land in in our church. But we really wrote about the fact, you know, uh, Barna and all the other research groups say that the huge majority of people who ever come to faith do so before the age of 18. So why aren't we putting in, you know, disproportionate amount of our energy and resources into children's ministry? So good. Uh, third chapter, Monday through Saturday. Uh, Sam, what's that went on? That's about um, the church having an external focus and uh, seeking to serve the community. And for, for my friends, at least, that's become kind of the new front door for a lot of people. Like that's the most important thing is are you actually making an impact? Yep, yep. Um, Four, you had to be there. Nancy, what's that? That's about what I've all, all called the, always called the hour on Sunday. Um, it's the gathering itself, which is only one part of church, but which probably gets the most attention in some ways, the most criticism, um, the most divisiveness over, you know, what should that look like? And we both have a, a perspective on the gathering. We both highly value it, but you know, talking about what does it mean going forward and does it still matter? Awesome. Um, five, when Harry works with Sally. <laughs> Sam, what's this one about? We never quite landed on a chapter title for that one that we loved. <laughs> but this is about um, men and women seeking to lead and work well together. And all the messiness that um, we've witnessed and uh, it, as we try to do that well in the church and um, our hopes for um, how that might look in the future. So good. Uh, The Mess We've Made. Nancy, what's that one on? That was probably the hardest chapters for us to write because it's about the church's history of exclusion. And uh, we could have talked about a lot of ways the church has has hurt and wounded people. We decided to focus on two primarily. Uh, One is the racial divide. And here we are, you know, two white women, obviously, but writing about our own awakening with this and our own learnings. And then the LGBTQ community. And what does it mean going forward that this is one of the top questions churches have? And are we going to be inclusive? And if so, what does that mean? Um, So we both wrote about that. Man, the reason I wanted to walk through these, because uh, I don't want any of our listeners just to think this is about a program. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This, the the way that you unpack, um, really the heartbeat, the, the ache, the, the, the things we have to address and get right moving forward. Man, this is such an important read. Um, behind the curtain, Sam, what's, what's this one? This is the last chapter, chapter yeah. seven. Yeah, well, it's kind of connected to, you know, your, what you're doing with this podcast, but that like at the end of the day, if we're, our character and our relationships on our church teams are not Christ-like, then what are we even doing? Because as people come and get closer and closer to the center of the church or the pe- the folks in leadership, the folks on the team, um, what are they, are they discovering more and more dysfunction and more of a mess? Or are they discovering, um, hopefully very, I mean, of course, imperfect people, but um, fiercely committed to love, to loving each other well. And so um, that's kind of our conversation around a church culture. What does it feel like to be there? Yep. Okay, so Nancy, go back, you know, a, a, a few years to you're at South Park and you, you know, have been helping to build this youth ministry. You go and you, you know, are part of Willow Creek. Let's say like you're in your early thirties, you're, you know, um, 
somewhere around Sam's age. Of the seven from your generation, what was the most important that you were thinking for our, for my friends? This is what we had to get right. I would say it was a tie between community, which we valued really highly, and the gathering on the weekend. You know, now I'm biased because that was my whole area, the arts and all of that. But we put so much emphasis on what was going to happen in the teaching and through the arts on Sunday morning. Those were probably the two that the boomers that I was a part of were focusing on. And and Sam, for you and your friends, like what of the seven, are they like, hey, if you don't have an answer for this, um, I'm probably not showing up to a church in Austin. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the chapter of the mess we've made on the church's history of exclusion and oppression Mm -hmm. and the chapter about um, having an external focus and being of service in the community would be the ones that uh, are the most important to my friends. And, you know, coming up with this list of distinctives, even I think we probably each would have seven slightly different bullet points. And so it was finding it reminds me when my husband and I did our wedding registry and it was like, well, I would choose these plates. He would choose these plates. What are the plates we would choose together? And, you know, I probably, chapter six, the one about uh, the mess we've made could have been like three chapters in my, would have been three in my list of seven. I mean, it, that just feels like what all my friends are wanting to know. What does the church have to say about the people we've excluded? Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I, that's what I think is just so beautiful about this, this ability that you guys both have. Um, and you both love the church. And you both um, have experienced, you know, things that just haven't been the best, but I, like reading these pages and again, only halfway through, I'm like, can't wait to get, get off this podcast and I have the rest of the afternoon. I'm going to plow through it. Uh, but I, I, I just feel the, the love that, that you have for the church um, and the desire to, you know, coming back to that Christ likeness, the, the, to these distinctives, to this, the, the, these these postures. Um, talk about why you both love the church so much. Why why you why you believe in the gathering and why you believe in community. Why why this? Um, yeah, why this matters so much to you in a time where it's it's really easy for um, for people not to, and especially for people who have experienced. Um, moments that haven't been the church at its best for you to still have almost a, a palette or portfolio of incredible stories. Talk about that. Well, I think in the last few years, I've been asked a few times, like, why haven't you just walked away? You know, uh, I, I've often said my greatest joyful moments in life and my most painful have both happened within the context of the church. Um, so it's been a real mystery to me in some ways how it can be so great and then so awful also. Um, but that's because we're all sinners and we bring ourselves, you know, to this community, this completely imperfect community of broken people, all trying to figure out what transformation could look like if we, if we did it, cooperated with the Holy Spirit and, and were real with each other. Um, but, I also am at the place where I say, I don't know what the other option is. I don't believe in isolation. Um, I, I believe that when the church uh, gets it at least close to the vision of what, what God had for it, it can be the most beautiful uh, healing kind of experience that we could possibly have. And it's my only option, I think, for really truly becoming more like Jesus, to be surrounded by people will speak truth to me and support me and be there when I most need them. Um, so, you know, similar to when Jesus said, are you all going to leave me too to the disciples? And Peter said, well, where else would we go? I kind of have a, well, where else am I, am I going to go? Um, this is, this is the best place I know to try to make it work it, work it out, work through my salvation with fear and trembling among some brothers and sisters. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Sam, what about for you? Yeah, well, over the course of, you know, it takes a long time to write a book. And from when we started to when we finished, um, it sort of eclipsed the time in which I committed my life to vocational ministry and found, um, fell in love with the church again, even as we wrote about the hard pieces and felt like 
um, this was the place where I could hope to see happen so much of what I longed for. And I think a lot of my hope comes from the fact that uh, it's so distinctive. I mean, I can't think of a lot of other places like it in modern life. And I think many of my friends long for what the church is at its best. They long for community and especially community with people who aren't like them, which is harder and harder and harder to find with all our algorithms that help us find exactly who we're looking for. Um, my friends long to be um, of good service to their community. They long for their hearts to be being transformed. Um, and, and they long to do that work together and to experience transcendent moments in community that aren't, that jump off of a screen and put us in real flesh and blood together, um, crying together, laughing together, gasping together, being quiet together. That is so, we don't get to do that very, I don't know where else we sing together. I mean, they're just, it, it, and that tying us all to these ancient stories and what we can learn from those who came before us. I think, I think when that's done well, it's unlike anything else we get to be a part of. And so I just so believe that it has more than ever to, to offer um, to people moving forward. And we just have to um, reckon with some of our history in order to do that well. I just want to say one other thing. Uh, when Sam said she's devoted her life now to vocational ministry, she tells people that I was the least excited person when she, when she made that announcement, which is, you know, hard to understand because I have been a pastor all my life. But I think it's because out of that mothering protection. You know, I also know that the church can be a wounding place. And so I got a little nervous. But uh, the more I wrestled with it, the more I thought, Oh, what a gift. What a, what a joy that my daughter would jump in to these waters, you know, with me and with her generation and try to figure it out. It, it's, um, it's unbelievable to me, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I celebrate it, even though I did so with great caution. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, but, and just hearing you rattle that off, um, Sam, just, it's like, I want to, I want to hold that clip and just, uh, because there was something so beautiful um, about your take on the bride um, okay. and just uh, what she can be, you know, and, and the truth. And, I, and I'm grateful for, again, how both of you handle this is there is stuff that has to be reckoned with. And that's not bad. It's actually really, right. really good. And, and that's, um, that's stuff that I feel like is, helps us um, kind of move into the next um, iteration of what I think Christ wants for his bride. And I feel like this book, you, you all are just diving in. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask authors though, is the writing process is so unique and especially, you know, writing uh, not just as one person, but having uh, both of you co-author this, you kind of submit the book usually nine months before, and then you have some edits, but you can't really change much but life happens and you read other stuff and culture happens. And there's probably, there's, I feel like it for most authors, there's a moment where we go, Oh, if they could just give me 2,500 more words, this is what I would want to write on. Is that, was there for each of you one distinctive that you're like, I wish, I wish I could have just smuggled this one in. I, sort of forced it in, um, in the very 11th hour, but I think I'm still sitting with it. It was very hard to write about the Sunday gathering, which we both so deeply believe in during the pandemic and during a time when no one could gather and, uh, we all missed it, but churches were having to be incredibly innovative and many doing so, you know, like I said, with great creativity, on how to reach people online. And then in doing that, discovering lots of times a ministry that was desperately needed for people who couldn't gather or, or couldn't find a church that they wanted to be a part of in their little town. And so um, I think we called the chapter, you had to be there, which feels a little bold after COVID. <laughs> and I think we're all still sitting with what the past years have revealed to us about the gathering, which my mom and I still fiercely believe in, but I sometimes am like, I wonder if I came off a little strong in that chapter and held enough space for the power of what is happening across the internet. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. How about for you, Nancy? Uh, I don't know that I would have wanted a whole other chapter or anything, but I don't think I could ever have emphasized enough the last chapter about culture 
And with what we've seen, even increasingly since we wrote the book of moral failures and celebrity culture and all of this stuff going on, um, I just think anything we can do to fortify the inner life of people and form, you know, spiritual formation in people um, so that, as Sam said earlier, the closer you get to the center of a church, the the more like Jesus it feels. Um, I, I just felt like I couldn't do that justice. I wish I could have somehow been more brilliant in how I tried to paint that picture. But I just think that is the thing that burns within me is that our churches be healthy and whole. And uh, I don't think we can emphasize that enough. Uh, I love that. Well, that's a, that's a great segue to, you know, the, this podcast is called Crafting Character. And, you know, for us, I, I want people to get better at the, the craft of communication. And Nancy, you, you help out. And we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment, just the, the ways that you help coach uh, some communicators in our cohorts. But I never want our success on a platform to outpace our character. And like you said, we, we've seen this happen. And, and it gets hard. It's hard um, when you have, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of people um, watching and you teach and speak. And um, how have you both um, stayed grounded? I mean, Nancy, like you, I feel like your steadfastness, your faithfulness, um, I, I just think the way that people talk about you um, and the, the way that they hold you in such high regard, you know, it's, it's, a it's something for me to aspire to. Um, and Sam, just to see, you know, dear friends of mine, just the way that they've interacted with you, you know, in, in the recent months and just been like, gosh, she is uh, next level, you know, and just, there's something about her, not just her gift, but about her, um, talk about the the practices or how you both fight for character in a world that wants to platform gifting and calling. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be very curious what my mom has to say. She has many more years of wisdom on this than me, but I have admired watching her, especially in recent years, um, just her commitment to honesty and having hard conversations when they're required and not we're both Enneagram threes who could be prone to being spin doctors of all kinds. And so I'm really aware, especially when you're in an upfront role, um, that my attention can all go to how I'm perceived. And so I just admired my mom's ability to let that go and, um, pursue honesty and integrity instead. And, in a really practical way. I mean, this is just one small thing though that, that's been setting me free the last few years um, is the practice of contemplative prayer. And one of the meditation teachers I love calls it taking a vacation from yourself. And uh, I've been I've been trying to be disciplined about doing that for, you know, my, my time with God used to be full of words and I would journal everything and read everything. And I'm just being, um, it's doing work in me to just sit in God's presence. And before I've said anything or made anything that day, be reminded that I'm already enough and already loved and that I'm so small. And um, that's getting harder now that I have an infant around, but I'm trying to find moments um, for stillness and solitude still. I love that. I love that. And I mean, I think that's that's one of the, the, the pieces for me that, you know, we've, we've never hung out in person. It's just all been through like an evening Psalm, uh, like an interaction online or just connect here, there. But uh, watching you, I just feel like there's a groundedness. uh, um, And that's just something I just so appreciate. Just, there just seems to be a a real rootedness. um, And that I feel like when people have experienced contemplative prayer, just to like rest in some of those truths, um, Gosh, what a gift that is. What a gift that is. So Nancy, what about for you? Well, I appreciate your kind words earlier, but um, I think the longer I walk with God, the more I see uh, the darkness, you know, that lurks within, the more I'm aware of my addiction to approval and, uh, you know, the letting go process. I think it's going to be lifelong 
Um, but you notice more and more if you, if you pay attention. And I'm just trying to pay attention and say, where did that thought come from? And why am I concerned about that? And why do I care what this person online said who I don't even know? You know, um, and, and so uh, I couldn't say it any better than Sam did. I have learned to be still uh, for periods of time, particularly in the morning because I'm a morning person. Uh, with less words. And it, it has really made a difference. I'm never going to be good at meditation and all that. And there, that's the achiever in me, good at meditation, like the, like I'm looking for to get an A or something. It's, it just doesn't come naturally to me to be still, but it's when I'm still that I remind myself of my fundamental identity, which is that I'm a daughter of God. And if I can get back to that and quit my pushing and striving and just see what God has for me. Um, it's been very humbling to get older. And it's a season of, of um, you know, recognizing that it's time for me to be in the background. Um, it's time for me to celebrate the leadership of the next generation. And I look, I told Sam the other day, it's like you're on the brink of everything. You know, she's, she's a new mom and she's going to have a new ministry opportunity and and teaching and writing and all of that. And there's a part of me that could say, oh, I miss that. And I, I do miss being on the brink of everything, but I feel like I'm on the brink of a different season, a season of mentoring. Uh, you mentioned cohorts. I, there's nothing I love better than getting around younger leaders these days and supporting them, encouraging them, being a mirror for them, a safe place for them. Um, that That is my joyful place these days. And I think it's what we're supposed to do as we get older. I don't know why that like really made me emotional. Um, just hearing you, uh, man, uh, just, you know, that, that mama's heart caution of for Sam going into full vocational and also that profound wonder of, you're the brink of everything. Like it's, it's all, but I think just the beauty of um, stepping aside and amplifying and coaching and mentoring. And I mean, again, you're um, one of the best I've ever seen um, just the, the ways that you can ask the right question or facilitate or make people from, you know, I was in one recently in, in Phoenix with you and, um, women and men just uh, hanging on the words that you were speaking and the ways that you were coaching and the ways that you were joining in on a practice, but then just, just drawing out the best. Um, why do you think it's hard for people to step aside um, and make space? Um, and I think that's, that's, that's one of the, uh, I think that, that, that part just, I feel like it's so rare these days. Um, well, my friend Nancy Orberg has a metaphor for it that I've held on to many times. It's from the movie Seabiscuit. And there's this race towards the end where the one rider, the one jockey pulls back a little bit intentionally and lets Seabiscuit soar uh, to the wind. And uh, she has often said it's time for some of us to make room, to make space for these new voices and, you know, uh, in the secular world, an Episcopal priest I know told me this recently, and I think it's so true. In the secular world, if you think about movies and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and uh, Harry Potter, there's all these wisdom figures. There's Gandalf and there's Yoda and there's all these you know, wisdom figures who've been around a while. And I'm certainly not trying to call myself a wisdom figure, but I think the way of God is that as we age, we are able to pass the baton. And as we do so, to give counsel, to listen, to support, to say, I know I get it. I've been there. Or maybe even a few warnings, um, you know, from mistakes that we've made. Um, that's the way it should go. And the young, in my opinion, these days, the younger generation is far more humble and open to receiving that kind of mentoring and coaching than my generation was uh, when we were starting out. I, I personally think we were quite arrogant and we thought our, our parents didn't know anything about how to do church or, or, or whatever. I don't sense that from this younger generation and I am inspired by them 
because I, I see them looking with wide eyes and saying, what can we learn from you? And it's beautiful. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to be invited into that kind of relationship. And I think, I think one of the beautiful pieces too is, again, this is like part of your superpower, Nancy, is uh, the humility that you're sensing on others to receive. But I also just feel like you, you're still hungry to learn. And I think, again, that's, that's even at the heart of next Sunday, like just the ways in which you are tackling topics that, you know, in the eighties probably wasn't the conversation, but now going, I gotta, I gotta read up. I gotta research. I gotta learn. And I just keep going, gosh, as we step aside, there is a lot that needs to be reckoned with in the church. But I also go, gosh, um, there's a lot if we can make space and start to see women and men, uh, people of color, uh, community, um, just a little taste of heaven uh, invading uh, these gatherings and and these living rooms and uh, what is possible. And just just thank you, thank you for you both. Just trying even tackling these seven distinctives. Thanks for just uh, the both of you and the way that you go deep with Jesus and your gift. Um, I'll end with this question. If I'm, if I'm a church leader and, you know, the majority of people who listen to this podcast are preachers or are, uh, you know, senior pastors, um, emerging voices in the, in the church world, what is your, what's your hope? How could, how could somebody use this resource? Um, obviously go buy it, read it for themselves, but, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's so much more that this book can be used for. Um, Sam or Nancy, any, any way that you go, gosh, we dreamed this up. This is how we thought specifically in church world they could really utilize next Sunday. We really, I mean, the book is a dialogue. And so I think we, our great hope is that both, you know, parents and their adult children to um, pastors across different denominations or different ministry spaces um, and, and teams of church leaders would use it to, as a jumping off point, would would maybe use these seven distinctives um, to go, how are we in this area? Or what do we, what was once true in this area? And what do we want to carry forward? And what maybe needs to shift? And what do we envision for the years to come? But that um, we are, we are two limited perspectives on all of these things, but, but they are seven things that the church has, that has been true of the church for, for ever for as long as the church has been around. And so there are things that we get to keep reinventing. And as you guys have just so beautifully described, there's so much wisdom that we get to pull forward. And so my great hope would be that it just uh, be that you buy a copy for yourself and buy one for someone else and have a dialogue with it. I love that. I love that. Well, hey, thank you so much for the time. Um, one more question. I'm sorry. Where can people find you? Where can people find the book? They can find the book on Amazon. I know, I know it's there. Um, it was published by InterVarsity Publishers. Um, and uh, for me, I'm redoing a website, so I, I hesitate to give that. But I, I love connecting on email, and I freely give my email address. It's nancylbeach at gmail.com. And Sam does have a website. Yeah, I'm at samanthabeach.work, and my Instagram is um, at samanthabeachk. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us on the Craft and Character Podcast. Go get next Sunday. You will be greatly, greatly blessed. Thanks for having us, Steve. Well, thanks so much for tuning into the Craft and Character Podcast. And again, I'm just so grateful for Nancy Beach. Uh, she's going to be leading another Craft and Character cohort. It's launching this summer. You got to go to the ascentleader.org and sign up. Uh, this is this is going to be a cohort that is for both women and men. Um, we 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 actually believe uh, that women and men were better together in Daniel Strickland language. Like we we believe this. We want to encourage. We've done a couple of these groups already, and it's been incredible, incredible. Also, this fall we have a group with Dave Stone, and Dave Stone's just Captain Humility. Go to the Ascent Leader, check it out. Also, if you're a church planner, we just launched the church planners uh, cohort, or if you're in the midst of a transition, we're launching transition leader groups all the time. Go to the Ascent Leader, see where you can actually fit in, because leaders get better when they get coached, when they get mentored, and when they're in living rooms with other leaders, and they can show up and be honest and human. Hey, also, you know how much I love what preaching today is about, and we're doing some amazing work. I, I feel like this podcast is a part of it, but the work on that website 
And I love that this partnership that they have with craft and character, you can literally get PT, preaching today, a membership. It's going to give you sermon illustrations. It's going to help you with exegesis. It's going to feed your soul. There's these member conversations that we get to do. They're just going to kind of pour in and invest in you just for a very, very reasonable monthly rate. You can go to orderptnow.com slash cc30, and they will give you 30% off, which is just an absolute steal. And then please check out Food for the Hungry. Um, I'm excited. I'm headed on a trip this summer with them. Um, I'm excited. I've been doing work with them. I sponsor uh, 10 kids through them. And I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm just about what they're about. Holistic, communal transformation. They're doing some amazing, amazing work. So my friends, thank you so much for your support. Hey, share this. Maybe you know someone who just needs uh, a little bit of what Sam and Nancy taught, or maybe maybe for you, you've just been tracking with the, the crafting character story. Would you leave a review? I mean, that goes so far. I know people, would be, when they're looking through podcasts, they'll read it, they'll see it. Uh, whatever you view this podcast is, or however helpful it is, let the world know it does a great, great service to helping people get better at the craft communication, but always having their character lead the way. Much love, everyone. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.